I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Casual Criminalist. This one is The Shark on Murders. You have to excuse me. If my voice sounds a little strange, I'm just getting over a cough. And I'm actually having a cough suite right now because it is rough, but I need to get this episode recorded because I have a schedule to keep to. For some reason, I do two of these a week. I'm not quite sure why. I think the original plan with the show was we were doing one long episode and one short episode a week, and then somehow they both became long episodes, and then all the episodes seemed to get super long, and then some episodes ended up being three hours, which I, I don't understand how it happens. Anyway, not important. This is The Shark Arm Murders. Thank you, Kevin, for writing. If you're new here... The whole lot of the show is I've never read this before, we're going to read it together. It's going to be a fun exploration, except it's not because it's about murders and sharks and all things scary. I think this one's set in Australia, the scariest country. I mean, in terms of wildlife. I wouldn't exactly want to go to Juarez in Mexico or something, or North Korea, or Syria, or Iran, or like Ukraine right now, or Russia, or <laughs> the list goes on, doesn't it? Scary countries be scary. I'll never understand why I enjoyed going fishing as a kid. Fishing is mostly just a boring test of patience, something that children are generally lacking. As an adult, I now understand that fishing is less about the sport itself and more just an excuse to get drunk by the water. The safest of all places to be drunk. <laughs> it's true. Fishing is just a hobby, which is an ex- like for most people, it's just an excuse to go sit by the river, chill out with your mates, and have a few brewskis. We never caught much of anything either. I can only remember two times I actually got a bite, neither of which went as expected. In the first such instance, I had cast the line on my Snoopy fishing rod, and within seconds, before I'd even had time to put the rod down, I told my father I had a bite. My brother and I always thought we had a fish on our line when we didn't, and seeing as I had literally just cast my line, he didn't believe me. I put my rod down, as I was told, and it immediately flew across the ground into the lake before being hauled out of sight by the fish. I remember when I, the first time I ever went fishing, also went with my dad, and we got there, we set up our fishing rods. My dad's not a fisherman. I'm not a fisherman. I don't know why. I, I think it was just like some father said, he's like, we let's go fishing together. So we did. I was like, I was young. I must have been like 10, 11 years old. We set up our fishing rods and my dad's like, all right, I got to go take a leak. And I'm like, what if I catch something? What am I going to do? And he's like, oh, don't worry, you won't catch anything. And then immediately after he leaves, uh, my the, the, the float goes down. And I'm like, oh my God, I've definitely caught something. So I pull the rod up like real hard, like instructing, like, you know, winding it or whatever. And there's a big ass fish on the end edge of ed, end of that rod and i'm like maybe i was a kid so it's not as big as i remember but it was a, it was at least i don't know 30 40 centimeters long a big fat fish and uh, there was another angler fisherman like right next to me and he must have seen what was going on and he came over and he was like don't worry i got it <laughs> and he gets it and he whacks the fish on the head and then we take the fish home and we eat it none of that catch and release bullshit the second time I caught something was in Boston Harbor. Isn't that the harbor where all the tea was thrown into? Going saltwater fishing was such a big deal for us as kids. We rarely did it because it was a longer drive. Instead of digging up earthworms in the backyard, we had to go to the bait shop to buy sea worms, which were always a bit scary because they could bite you. I've never been sea fishing. I didn't realize there were scary worms that you had to use. It was bass season, and so we went to the docks expecting to catch bass. Actually, we expected to catch nothing, since that's normally how it went, but we hoped to catch bass. When I finally got a bite, I reeled in my line and was shocked to discover that I'd caught some sort of rare 
ray, likely either a stingray or a cow nose ray, though I have no idea which. We had no idea what to do with it or if it was even edible, so we tossed it back. It just goes to show that there's no telling what you'll catch when you go fishing. If you're god, is someone going to catch like a foot or something, aren't they? Because it's the casual criminalist. This isn't like fishing podcast. Although I'm sure those exist. If you're lucky, you might actually catch a fish. Realistically, you'll leave with nothing except a sunburn and the makings of a killer hangover. But if you're an Australian child, you could cast your line and reel in Exhibit A in a murder trial. The Discovery The year was 1935. The entire world was feeling the effects of the Great Depression. Like most people, Bert Hobson was hit hard by the Depression. He lived in the beach town of Coogee in New South Wales, Australia. He ran the Coogee Aquarium, and for a long time it was going great. But when the economy took a downward turn, so too did his business. It turns out that when a family has to choose between buying food and paying to look at fish that you emphatically are not allowed to eat, it's a it's not a difficult decision. Attendance at the aquarium was made even worse in 1934 when the adjacent pier was shut down and demolished. The pier had included a 1,400-seat theater and an arcade, patrons of which would often visit the aquarium as well. It's been a long time since we've had a recession, and I remember it a few years ago. A few years ago, it was like when I was at university. There was like that housing thing in the U.S. that kind of had global repercussions, as events in the U.S. tend to do. And then there was like some other shit, the banks. It went down. It all feels like a really long time ago now. And now it's like, I don't know, it feels like we're going there again, doesn't it? Which is a bit grim. Well, I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> lose all my sponsors. Lose all my money. Why? I was not in the mood to listen to this thing now. And speaking of sponsors, this video is brought to you, but it's not. I don't know who it's brought to you by. Hopefully it's got a sponsor. Otherwise, maybe we're heading to a recession. Enough about business, let's carry on with murder. Times were tough and Burton needed something big to get people back into his failing business. There are a lot of different tricks and tactics businesses could employ to try to increase sales and profits. But if you own an aquarium, I guess the most effective tactic is to just grab a fishing rod and catch something cool that you can show off. Technically, he had a fishing boat, but still. On April the 17th, Bert and his son went fishing off the coast of Coogee Beach, and as luck would have it, his son was able to snag a tiger shark on his line. Between February and March that year, three young men had been killed in shark attacks. Sydney had even hired hunters to take out the sharks and make their beaches safe again. For Bert, having his very own tiger shark on display would be a great way to capitalize on the current hysteria surrounding shark attacks. But when it rains, it pours. Before Bert's son was able to bring the shark out of the water, it was swallowed whole by a much larger tiger shark. No f- Way. Bert and his son were able to wrestle the beast into the boat, and he immediately had it transported to the aquarium, where it was given an entire pool in the aquarium to itself. In the end, Bert was the proud owner of a 14-foot-long, 2,200-pound shark. How the hell did you get that out of the water? Hey Siri, what's 2,200 pounds in kilograms? That's a thousand kilograms! That's a metric ton! How did you get that? I guess they have like, I don't know, what's that show? Um, extreme fishing boats or whatever deadliest catch and they go out there and that show's so bizarre i remember watching it on a plane once and being really confused i was like is this real or is this fake it was like semi-documentary but also like fictional elements and i'm like what is going on in this show and i'm on a plane and so you can't just like immediately google it be like what's up with deadliest catch is that shit real and then it's one of those things that you get off the plane and you're like you're you've already left it behind you're like i'm not interested i've never never gonna look that up and i never have looked it up and it's just been one of those mysteries Deadliest catch? Is it real? Is it fake? Do I care? No. But I guess they have some sort of special equipment for reeling in a monster like that. People were well aware of all the shark attacks that have been going on, but rarely did they have the chance to actually see one of these creatures in person. People flocked 
to the aquarium to marvel at the massive tiger shark, and everything went great for about a week. Sort of. At first, the shark was energetic and seemed to be adjusting well to its new prison. I mean, home. However, it wasn't long before it began wall riding. This is exactly what it sounds like, and it's when a shark constantly swims while rubbing its stomach against the walls of its prison. I mean, tank by itself this isn't necessarily a bad sign it's fairly common behavior for sharks when adjusting to a new prison-like environment and it usually goes away quickly but the shark's behavior didn't improve it began ramming its head directly into the walls of the enclosure and eventually it just settled at the bottom of the pool there it swam listlessly in slow erratic circles this didn't seem to matter to the visitors of the aquarium you just thought it was cool to see such a massive shark even if it seemed to be barely alive at this point so things weren't necessarily going great for the shark but they were going great for his human captor and well that's all that matters yeah this was also back in the day no one gives a shit. it's not like sea well like people are like that dolphin's got a droopy fin let him be free and I, I i'm being sarcastic but i kind of agree with it but people were uh, much more on this shit nowadays but kind of like zoos have to be nice to the animals back in the day it'd be like zoos be nice to animals <laughs> why they're animals they don't have feelings on April the 25th, Australia celebrated Anzac Day. Anzac stands for Australia and New Zealand Army Corps, and it's a day of uh, remembrance observed each year on the anniversary of the first campaign in World War One that led to major casualties for Australia and New Zealand. Oh, we have something similar. We have that on the 11th of November, the day of the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, the end of World War One, And at 11am, we're all silent for a minute. I mean, we're supposed to be. I guess as adults, we don't really do it. It's on the radio. The radio will go silent and everything. The TV will go silent, I think. And we used to have to do it at school, but I haven't done it in many years. Which I guess is bad. I kind of like that, that we think back about that stuff. Maybe I'll do that this year. I'm almost certainly going to forget. Americans celebrate Memorial Day by grilling in their backyards, and apparently Australians celebrate Anzac Day by gawking at sharks at the local aquariums. Yeah, we celebrate Remembrance Day by remembering. We just stand there for a minute in silence, remembering all the people who died in a war. There's no barbecues. There's no joy. It's just remembering people who died, mostly, mostly unnecessarily in lots and lots of historic wars that Britain fought for reasons. I mean, some reasons were good, like f*** the Nazis and all that but mostly people dying in wars like the First World War was just a meat, pointless meat grinder. It's to- totally pointless. Since it was a national holiday, everybody was off from work and school. The aquarium was extremely busy all day, and some reporters even showed up to write their fluff news stories about the captive shark. Then at 4.30pm, with one such reporter only a few feet away, the shark decided to reveal the cause of its abnormal behavior. It began to convulse violently before vomiting out a malodorous brown mist. Then it regurgitated a rat, a bird, a severed human arm with a rope tied around the wrist. If this one wasn't a true crime show, you'd probably think, so what, tiger sharks are one of three species most prone to attacking humans? There have been even been multiple fatal shark attacks in the area not long before this the shark was a bit of a dick and took somebody's arm off mystery solved indeed that's what the police thought at first as well however both an ichthyologist and coroner uh, i don't know what that is what is an ichthy come on what i love about this ipad you can just touch things and click look it up which is ideal for people with small brains ichthyology the branch of zoology that deals with fishes there you go. And a coroner were called to the scene just to be sure, and they agreed that this was not a simple shark attack. It was a murder. To start, there wasn't a single bite mark on the arm anywhere. There were also clean, rigid cuts from a dull blade at the end of the arm. Unless Australian sharks have learned to use tools, this was clearly the work of a human. And if they have started using tools, well, may God have mercy on us all. Today's episode brought to you by Wondry from Amazon Music. I Hear Fear is a new anthology series of suspenseful stories hosted by Carrie Mulligan. These stories are inspired by true events 
real places. So the next sound you could hear could be your own scream. In each episode of I Hear Fear, you'll be treated to a new psychological thriller. A forest monster who lures teens into the woods and never lets them return. A line of beauty products that takes the search for youth to dark extremes. And an EDM dance party that turns deadly where the DJ takes over more than just the dance floor. Now, these might sound like urban legends, but I Hear Fear proves that the scariest stories of all are the ones that are true. I Hear Fear will introduce immersive horror and lead you straight into the heart of darkness. Prepare to be taken on a journey into the unknown. So Prime members can listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, I Hear Fear, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. And now back to today's show. The Investigation The police now knew there was a murder on their hands, but how could they identify the victim from just an arm? It turns out, extremely easily. The forearm had tattoos of two boxers, which made it easily identifiable. Like boxers, like people who box, rather than, you know, cardboard boxes. I realize they sound super similar when said aloud. The day after the incident, Edward Smith came forward to identify the arm after reading about it in the paper. The arm had belonged to Jim Smith, Edward's brother. Jim's wife, Gladys, would confirm that the arm belonged to him as well. Jim had been missing for a few weeks now, and the distinctive tattoo made it obvious that it was him. Because the arm had remained so well-preserved, police were able to fingerprint it just in case to prove conclusively that it was Jim. They had the victim, and now all they needed was the culprit. But who exactly was Jim Smith, anyway? Jim was a failed boxer and failed builder turned handyman and pool hall manager. While working at the pool hall, he began making connections with the criminal underworld, particularly illicit gambling. Well, that's probably how he ended up getting killed. One of the connections he made was with a wealthy businessman and crime kingpin named Reginald William Lloyd Holmes. And if you think wealthy businessman named Reginald Holmes is going to get arrested at any point during the story, I'm genuinely envious of your naivety. The real story is way crazier anyway. Ah, yes, the, the rich man doesn't get in trouble. Reginald was not only a respected businessman with a thriving boat-building company, he was also a smuggler and a scam artist who would send employees like Jim out using his fleet of boats to collect contraband like cigarettes and cocaine that was thrown overboard from shipping vessels. He also liked to run insurance scams, which is what led to him falling out with Jim. Reginald used Jim on his building sites to cheat builders out of materials. He would also over-insure buildings, then have Jim burn them down. It begs the question of how many times you can collect insurance for arson before the insurance companies figure out what's clearly happening, but we'll never actually have the answer to that. I, if I was an insurance company, I'd just be like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get your insurance to somewhere else. It's like, I'm not going to pursue you for the previous stuff because that's going to be a nightmare, but uh, I'm not insuring you anymore. And I'm sorry about that, but that's my that's my choice. And then if I was an insurance company, another insurance company, I'd be like, have you had any uh, insurance claims in the last five years? Who was your previous insurer? I'm going to check with them. Maybe we'll set up some sort of database. You see, Jim had a string of arrests for minor infractions, so he was well known to the police. He was also playing both angles because he had turned into a police informant. He's dead. In 1934, Reginald had insured his pleasure boat, Pathfinder, for an obscene amount of money. Jim was tasked with sinking the ship to collect the insurance money, which he did, but he told the police the sinking was suspicious and Reginald was forced to eat the cost of his fancy boat without collecting on insurance. That's all? Isn't that fraud? Isn't there going to be some criminal proceeding for that? Despite Reginald blaming the failure on Jim, they didn't stop working together. Shortly after the event, they began working with another man called Patrick Brady. Patrick had discovered a talent for forgery in World War One, where he would forge the signatures of generals on documents. Reginald put this talent to good use, having Patrick forge small checks on his behalf for Reginald's legitimate customers. These checks were then cashed by Patrick and Jim. The three could have continued working together peacefully, despite tensions between Jim and Reginald. 
Reginald, but Jim got greedy. Being an informant may have offered him some protection from his crimes, but it also cut him out of the loop for the more lucrative insurance operations. To recoup his lost wages, he turned to blackmailing Reginald. Uh-oh. He's dead. Yeah. Blackmailing the rich crime kingpin is not the way to go. But rich blackmailing rich people, yes. Blackmailing rich crime kingpins, no. Police learned that Jim had last been seen on April the 7th when he was drinking and gambling with Patrick at the Cecil Hotel. The two retired to a cabin that Patrick rented and Jim was never seen again. Late that night, Patrick called for a taxi, which picked him up at his cabin and took him directly to Reginald's house. The cab driver described Patrick as being frightened and disheveled and said that he was clearly hiding something in his jacket. The Interrogations there were now two suspects, but all the police had was weak circumstantial evidence. They didn't even have enough evidence for an arrest, let alone a conviction, so they had to try to get a confession out of one of the men. In order to try to get that confession, Patrick was arrested on unrelated charges of forgery so that he could be interrogated. Reginald was also asked to come into the station of questioning. It took six hours of interrogation before Patrick finally talked. He implicated Reginald as the mastermind behind everything, claiming that he was ordered to kill Jim as punishment for the blackmail. Yeah, also to get rid of the blackmail problem, because if you're blackmailing someone and they're, they, they, they're going to kill you if they're a crime, they're just going to do it. They'll be like, well, you know what? You can't blackmail me if you're dead. And that's that, isn't it, mate? Off with your head. Even with this allegation, it said that he didn't really offer the police anything they didn't already know. I mean, it sure sounds to me like he confessed to murder for hire, but I guess the police had already figured as much. On May the 16th, he was arrested and charged with the murder of Jim Smith. As for old Reggie, he told the police he had never met Jim or Patrick before in his life and that he had no idea who either man was. The police were well aware of all the rumors regarding Reginald's involvement in organized crime, so naturally they took him at his word and let him go. However, four days after Patrick's arrest, Reginald seemed to suffer some sort of mental break. He took his pistol and a bottle of gin, hopped onto one of his many, many boats, and went out into Sydney Harbour. With one hired goon found dead and another in jail, maybe he was worried that Johnny Law was finally going to catch up with him. Whatever his motivation, a drunken Reginald raised the, pis- raised the pistol to his forehead and pulled the trigger. Well, <laughs> Hang on. I was like, this guy's not going to get in trouble because he's like super rich and connected. And it's like, no, he did get in trouble because he killed himself. Which is not exactly the ending that you, not the garden path you led me down, Kevin, was it? It turns out that the gun was weak as hell because the shot didn't actually kill him. All right. Okay, maybe. Instead, the bullet simply flattened against the bone of his skull, leaving only a superficial wound. The impact was still enough to knock him unconscious, and Reginald fell out of his boat. Once in the water, he suddenly woke up and climbed back onto the boat. Because this was in the harbor, others witnessed the event and had the common courtesy to call the police. They probably didn't actually care whether or not this dude killed himself, but he was drunk and driving his speedboat erratically, so they wanted to stop him to protect others. But Reginald didn't want the police. He wanted to die. Even if he had changed his mind on that front, he certainly didn't want the police. He wound up leading them on a four-hour chase through the harbor and into the ocean before finally giving up. At one point, it's reported that he yelled to a crowd of spectators, Jimmy Smith is dead and there is only another left. If you leave me until tonight, I will finish him. Once again, that sounds an awful lot like a confession or at the very least a threat against Patrick. It does sound like, yeah, either of those things or both. Reginald was again taken in for questioning. This time, he claimed that he had been attacked by unknown assailants in his home before fleeing on his boat. He said that he fled away from the police because he thought that his attackers were chasing him by boat. The police weren't buying this, so they continued interrogating him, and eventually he fessed up. According to Reginald, Patrick was the mastermind behind everything. He had given Jim the old Sydney send-off, a slang term for cutting people up, putting them pieces in a trunk, and then 
tossing it in the ocean. Yes, that was a frequent enough occurrence in Australia at the time, but it was a common there was commonplace slang for it. After killing him, Patrick allegedly then brought the arm to Reginald to threaten and blackmail him. He claimed to have paid the blackmail, at which point Patrick just left the arm with him. Panicked and unsure what to do, Reginald tossed the arm into the ocean where it was eaten by the <laughs> whoops. Where it was eaten by the shark. When I heard this story, I didn't buy it for a moment. Dude was supposed to be a crime lord, and all of his lackeys were just taking turns blackmailing him. But it doesn't matter what my gut reaction to this story was, because the police believed it. Reginald was set free on the condition that he would testify at Patrick's trial and repeat everything he had told the investigators. The second murder and the trial. Like I said, I didn't believe Reginald's story when I first heard it, but I've since come around. The night before the trial, when he was set to testify, Reginald was shot dead in his car with three rounds at point-blank range. He was found the next morning slumped over his steering wheel. Considering he was a known criminal who likely had a lot of enemies and associates, it's possible that this was unrelated to the trial. In fact, it could have been carried out by an associate of his who had never even met Patrick, but who had heard Reginald was going to testify and didn't want the criminal mastermind to snitch on them as well. Or it could be exactly what you all assumed when you heard the star witness in the trial was murdered. Without his testimony, the prosecution was going to be at a disadvantage as the remaining evidence was weak. To complicate matters, the defense objected to the coroner being allowed to give testimony, citing an old British statute from 1276, which is not a typo. They argued that the coroner had no jurisdiction to conduct an inquest into the death of Jim because a body was required to perform such an inquest and a single arm could not be considered a body. Loophole much? Come on. <laughs> then just get another expert. Get another doctor. Someone who's not a coroner. Basically, they were using the famous no-body-no-crime defense. The difference is that in this case, it actually worked. The lawyers weren't able to get the charges dismissed outright, but without the testimony of the coroner or of Reginald, how could anyone prove a murder had even taken place? Well, there's a chopped-up arm. That fucking counts! Loophole, for fuck's sake! Maybe somebody cut off Jim's arm and threw it in the ocean by accident, or maybe he was sick of staring at the tattoo that reminded him of his failed boxing career, and he decided to remove it the only way you know how. You don't know, you weren't there. That is not reasonable doubt. That is a murdered body's arm. I'm sorry, but it just is. Nowadays, they could probably tell, because they'd be like, well, this was cut off when the body was already dead, through like science and shit, but I guess they didn't have that back in the day. Maybe the arm was never thrown in the ocean at all, and somebody just tossed it in the aquarium tank. This latter scenario was countered by 14 witnesses who all testified to seeing the shark vomit out the arm, though that doesn't mean the shark wasn't fed the arm while in captivity. The defense also brought up the fact that a shark generally digests its food within 24 hours, whereas the arm would have been swallowed 8-17 to 17 days before it was thrown up if the story presented by the prosecution was true. This was countered by expert testimony from an the, the, the fish expert, which is really hard to pronounce, who said that the swallowing of the arm could have sufficiently disrupted the shark's digestion, resulting in the arm retain, remaining intact, as well as the shark's odd behavior throughout the week. It is also believed that it was actually the smaller shark that had swallowed the arm before it was swallowed by the bigger shark, which would only further complicate the digestive process. Now, killing the star witness in your murder trial the day before he's set to testify is a bold strategy, but in this case, it seems to have paid off for Patrick. Yeah, look, if you're going on trial for murder... And the way you're going to get out of it is by murder. Well, they're already going to put you away for murder, so kind of worthwhile in a way, isn't it? 
He was found not guilty and was free to go for a few minutes. As soon as he left the courthouse, he was arrested for fraud and forgery. Though these would lead to a conviction, he maintained his innocence in the murder until his death. It was believed that Reginald had confided in his wife and that she knew the truth about the murder. In November of 1952, it was said that she was preparing to come forward and reveal everything that Reginald had told her before his untimely death. Unfortunately, she then died in a mysterious house fire that was definitely not arson before getting the chance to tell her story. The fact that Patrick did not die until 1965 is probably an inconsequential detail. Theories Despite the fact this sounds like an open and shut case, it remains unsolved, and there are several theories surrounding different elements of the case. Everything I can find makes it sound like both Reginald and Patrick agreed that Patrick was the killer, and they just disagreed on who gave the order. Clearly, the reporting must be incomplete, since Patrick maintained his innocence until death and other theories exist. One of the theories involves the murder of Reginald. The obvious assumption was that he was murdered by Patrick, or barring that, some other disgruntled associate or perhaps enemy of Reginald. I'd say if it was someone else, it's really like, what are the odds? the day before his trial by a dude who's already a murderer and he could possibly murder him so he gets off on murder <laughs> it's patrick murdered reginald poof, 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 three shots in the car no witness the scene was staged to look like a suicide but it was clearly a murder but what if it was actually a suicide what he shot himself three times in the head <laughs> it sounds like you know when a russian journalist is killed how did he die a suicide three shots to the head <laughs> Reginald already put a gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. He was clearly in some sort of anguished mental state at the time, and the whole thing wasn't well thought out. But it doesn't mean his intentions changed. It is theorized that he wanted to die to spare his family the embarrassment of his conviction for all the non-murder crimes that he was committed. But now he was in a calmer mental state, and he realized that suicide wasn't an option. If he killed himself, his family wouldn't receive his life insurance, so it is claimed that he decided to go out with one last insurance scam by taking a hit out on himself. His wife said that the night he was killed, he told her he had to go out and meet someone, and that he had taken £500 out of the bank. Those in favor of this theory believe that was payment to the hitman that would end his life. I'm not really on board with this theory, but as far as conspiracy theories go, it is definitely among the more plausible. It's again one of those things where it's just like sure maybe possibly but there's no evidence for that whatsoever i mean 500 pounds maybe it's ridiculously loose evidence as for the murder itself the first and most obvious theory is that patrick did it this is where the facts of the story that we covered seem to point and it certainly seems to be the most realistic yeah totally agree patrick shot him he got away with it but he did it allegedly in my opinion the next theory is that reginald really was the mastermind behind it all were it not for reginald's murder i would have found this to be the most likely he had multiple motives to commit the crime jim was working with the police costing him money by undermining his insurance scams and worst of all jim was straight up blackmailing him that's a lot of reason to want someone dead and when you have enough hired goons to stop an entire fleet of drug smuggling boats it's probably easy to find someone willing to commit the crime now based on the taxi driver's account patrick almost certainly was hiding the severed arm under his jacket when he took the cab to visit reginald his disheveled and anxious appearance makes more sense in this theory as well if he was a cold-blooded murderer and he was bringing the arm as proof and means to blackmail his employer i'd expect him to be calmer in this situation but if he was doing a job he really wasn't mentally prepared for and was just bringing the arm to his contractor as proof the job was done then his demeanor makes a lot more sense to me I don't know he could still be a cold-blooded murderer and then still be nervous about blackmailing a crime kingpin 
I feel. This theory is generally accompanied by the suicide by Hitman theory, as otherwise Reginald's death becomes harder to explain. For me, the biggest problem with this is his previous suicide attempt. This scenario makes Reginald out to be a full-on sociopath, so I don't think he could have attempted to take his own life on the boat without having first thought through the insurance implications. Another theory comes from Australian legal historian Alex Castles. Based on testimony from Patrick's wife, Alex believes that the murderer is a previously unknown third party. According to Patrick's wife, he had claimed to be going out on a fishing trip that day. She had gone to the cabin that night, expecting to catch him cheating on her, but when she arrived, she heard a group of men inside, none of whom were her husband. According to this theory, Jim was already dead by the time that Patrick arrived at the cabin. Upon discovering what had happened, a panic Patrick took the arm to Reginald because he had no idea what to do. I'm no legal historian, but this doesn't feel that likely to me. It's entirely based on the testimony of a single witness, who also happens to be the wife of the accused. Yeah, I'm with you, Kevin. It seemingly ignores the fact that Jim was the last seen at the Cecil Hotel with Patrick, as it doesn't make a lot of sense that Jim would leave to go to Patrick's cabin by himself. I also find the idea that Patrick would have no idea what to do with the body a little hard to believe since the phrase Sydney send-off was commonplace. Even if it really was the case, why not just explain the situation to Reginald and ask what to do? I'm sure he'd believe the story without Patrick bringing the needlessly disembodied arm along as proof fully agree. Finally, that leaves just one other theory, which is that nobody killed Jim. It's rumored that word was beginning to get around about him acting as a police informant. Being a snitch could easily have led to him to fear for his life, and in such circumstances, he could want to fake his own death. This is reaching for straws a little bit, but there is one regard in which it does make sense. Bro, you got to extreme lengths. And then, this makes no, this makes no sense. He sawed off his own arm, he tossed it in the ocean, and then in the hope that someone would find it and then assume that he's dead? Like, what? Throwing your severed arm into the ocean and hoping somebody finds it is pretty stupid, exactly, since it sounds like bodies were thrown in the ocean all the time. However, throwing it into a tank with a captive shark, well, if you could somehow guarantee to induce vomiting in the shark, that's a nice way to make sure everyone sees your arm and knows that you're allegedly dead. Now that makes more sense. It provides a better explanation for why the arm wasn't digested, but everything about this is flimsy at best. Yeah, it's a nice little thing to wrap it up, but it's, it's not enough evidence there. Why cut off your entire arm? Even if you needed the tattoo removed so that the arm would be identified, only the forearm needed to be removed. Also, antibiotics have been barely discovered, so this would be an extremely risky surgery. Probably the most damning piece of evidence for this theory, as if it didn't already sound like total nonsense anyway, is that the coroner found that the knife used to cut off the arm was dull as shit. I don't care how desperate to disappear you are, if you're going to ask somebody to cut off your arm, you'd take the five extra minutes to make sure the knife is sharp. Yes, you would. It'd be nice if we had, they had that technology back then to figure out whether the arm was cut off when the person was dead or alive. That would answer some questions. But again, I don't believe any of these like wilder theories. The dude was killed by Patrick because he didn't want to go down for murder. Case closed. Wrap up. The shark arm murder case remains one of the most bizarre murders in Australian history and probably the entire world. Although it technically remains unsolved, hopefully Simon and I are on the same page, that Patrick is the clear, clear frontrunner as the guilty party, allegedly. Even if Reginald was the mastermind, Patrick still pulled the trigger, so to speak. Allegedly, in our opinion. But the suicide of these, these guys are all dead, right? They are dead. Even if Reginald was the mastermind, Patrick still pulled the trigger, so to speak. But the suicide attempt, subsequent murder, and later murder of Reginald's wife seriously call into question the idea that he orchestrated the whole thing. Oops, did I say murder? I meant mysterious fire that definitely wasn't arson. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, he was. He did a lot of arson, allegedly. There is still one loose end, however. What happened to the shark? Once it had vomited up the arm, did it go back to swimming around happily and saving Bert's aquarium from bankruptcy? Sadly, not so much. The aquarium staff decided to cut the shark open to see if there were any more human remains inside, a decision that is actually noted as impeding the police investigation. There were, in fact, no more body parts inside the shark, so it died in vain. This poor shark was taken captive and then given the death penalty when its only crime was cannibalism, which isn't even a crime. Isn't cannibalism a crime? Pretty sure cannibal. I guess shark to shark cannibalism isn't. <laughs> I was in a in a like um like a what do they call it? A chicken chicken pen. There was a chicken pen and a coop. Coop is the little building they live in, and the chickens were eating like little bits of chicken. They were. It was like the there was a restaurant or whatever, and this was like their organic farm. And the restaurant was obviously serving chicken, and then there were chicken bones that had been thrown into the chicken coop for the chickens to eat. And I was like, no, no. And then I Googled it, and apparently it's fine, but it's kind of fucked up. Some good did come out of the case, however. The term corpus delecti, which literally means body of the crime, was used in arguing that the arm is not a body, and thus the coroner could not testify. This argument was deemed stupid, especially since they had a severed part of the body. The case resulted in the legal world needing to more clearly define the meaning of corpus delecti. The definition, as been updated to mean the fact of a crime having been actually committed. You no longer need a physical body or even part of a body. You just need proof that a crime was actually committed. And remember, sharks may be cool-looking and a classic supervillain trope, but they aren't an effective means of disposing of a body. If you really want to make sure your victims disappear, you've got to use pigs. Hashtag not legal advice. This has been an episode of Casual Criminals. Thank you so much for listening or watching. It also goes out on YouTube. If you listen to this show and you like it, please leave a review on YouTube. Like, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.